to the church of Pergamum. Pergamum is modern-day Bergama. It lays about 55 miles north of Smyrna and lived a few miles from the Aegean coast. The meaning of the name Pergamum is citadel, or like fortress. The town was noteworthy for three reasons. It was a center for many pagan religious cults. The emperor worship was more intense there than in any other surrounding city. And second, it boasted of a university with a large library. Third, it was the leader and center of the production of parchment for written scrolls. It was extremely wealthy, but unlike Ephesus, it was also extremely politically powerful. And it was one of the leading worships of the Roman emperor. Politics. Chapter 2, verse 12. The angel of the church of Pergamum write the following. This is a solemn pronouncement the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you continue to cling to my name, and you have not denied your faith in me. Even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed in your city, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some people there who follow the teachings of Balaam, or Balaam, who are instructed Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. In the same way, there are also some among you who follow the teachings of the Nicolaeans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come against you quickly and make war against those people with the sword of my mouth. The one with who has ear had better hear, and the Spirit says to the churches, To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone it will be written a new name that no one can understand except the one who receives it. The title that Jesus used of himself, the city, was he who had the double-edged sword. This communicated the church was divided and that Jesus Christ would judge those in the church who would embrace false teachings. He literally will say, I will conquer you with my sword. So for them, the message he's communicating is, my sword is going to devastate you if you do not repent. Jesus commended them for staying true and faithful to him despite the fact that Satan has established his throne in their city. They were committed to him. They were faithful. Despite the persecution, They, unlike Ephesus, they had a passion for Christ. They had a passion for following him. They were enduring persecution. Ephesus probably didn't experience a lot of persecution because there doesn't seem to be anything that was threatening them. They were knowledgeable. They were skilled. They were committed to the truth and behavior. They worked really hard. So even though they weren't worshiping the emperor and all those other gods and that kind of stuff, probably the fact that they were working so hard to help the city gave them leniency. We've seen this in places like China is not a big fan of Christianity, but because the Christian churches over there in some places are helping China so much, China has overlooked those churches because they're doing what the government can't do, and they're appreciative of that. So there might have been some of that in Ephesus. For whatever reason, Pergamon is not experiencing that. They're being persecuted. They're, they're, they're facing things, and they're staying remain, they're faithful to God. Pergamon was the official seat of the imperial cult in Asia. It was the first city in Asia permitted to construct a shrine dedicated to the emperor. You had to like get high rankings in the emperor's mind in order to build a, uh, an altar to him for worship. Now, he loved emperor worship. He commanded it. But you also had to like do it the right way. 
And so this center of emperor worship in the, east, the Western world was Rome. But the center in the Eastern Asian world was Pergama. Pergama was the heart of absolutely religious politics. You know, kind of like Democrats and Republicans, where we're no longer just political, we're religiously political in our camps and parties. We actually believe that that party, the Democrats and Republicans, are what's going to save America and not Jesus. That kind of religious devotion, where I've been in churches where they're kind of like, oh, Jesus. And then we have the 4th of July, and they're like totally excited as we're singing songs about America and the anthem and all that kind of stuff. And where we're kind of on fire for God, but when George W. Bush, Bush comes, the churches get together and throw huge parties and campaigns for him that they've never done for Jesus on a Sunday morning. It's that religious political devotion that we're talking about. And it's here in Pergamon, the heart and the center of everything. And if I step on toes, I do that because I love you and I believe that it's true, not because I'm bashing you. But there is truth. Rome was the heart of the emperor's power. And so the, the, the throne in the Second Testament is always a seat of state. Some people have said that this is a religious throne, um, that this throne of Satan. But what Jesus is probably referring to is that actual statue of the emperor. Um, the word throne is always used of a political state all throughout the Bible. The fact that it's coupled with Satan probably means the emperor. Now, this is important, too, because Satan was the Jewish synagogue in the previous church. But Satan now is the religious politics because Satan has many forms. Satan doesn't care whether he comes to you as a nice, cute little girl or a, a really attractive boyfriend, or he comes to you in poverty and bitterness, or absolute wealth and decadence, or if he comes to you in religious fervor and fanaticism, or political whatever. As long as you're not following God, that's all he cares about. He will come in many different forms, as long as you're just not following God. And so for here, Satan, the throne of Satan, is the religious political fervor of the Roman Empire. Absolute devotion, religiously speaking, to the worship of politics and the Roman Empire. The state is everything. The state will save us. It'll make America great again. It'll bring hope. It'll bring change. It'll heal the nation. That kind of stuff. And that's what he's talking about. There was also a large temple to the God of healing who was represented by the on the serpent symbol, which was everywhere in the city. The serpents of healing were everywhere in the city. For those who did not sacrifice to the emperor and pay their financial dues, it would be extremely difficult to make any kind of living or have any kind of social status, thus making survival challenging. Now, this is the challenging part, that unlike America, although we are maybe starting to become like that, if you're not absolutely sold out to the emperor and paying your dues to the emperor and worshiping him, it would be incredibly difficult to make any kind of living. Every company, every um, money industry was connected to the guilds. And the guilds were all run by sacrifices to the gods and devotion to the emperor. And, and you had to pay your financial dues and make your sacrifices and burn your incense 
even even refusing to just burn the incense to the the emperor would just be political or um sorry financial career suicide just not just a little teeny little incense and so for Christians, it would be very easy to think all I have to do is just burn a little incense and I can have my job and still be with Jesus. Right? Just a little incense. It's not like I'm sacrificing to the gods. It's not like I'm bowing down and praying and worshiping. My, my boss just has to see me burn the little incense and just keep going. I can just light the little candle and keep walking. That's all it is. And Jesus says, you haven't done that. Blessed are you. You haven't even done that. That's what I have for you. Not even implies a greater intensity of persecution. So not even when Antipas had been persecuted and killed, did you even walk away? We don't really know who this guy is, but he obviously was a great man of faith. Um, Antipas is called a faithful witness. A lot of your translations might have martyr there. Now this is important to understand. The, he, the Greek word martyr literally means witness. It does not mean martyr. It means witness. The Greek word martyr means witness. It does not mean the English word martyr. All throughout the Bible, martyr is always translated witness. With the exception of... Um, the King James and a few other places in Revelation. So all throughout history and all throughout the Bible, it's always witness, 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 witness. But it's about this time period in the Roman church history where, so, where the Romans now decide they're going to completely turn against the church. They, they're not receiving the, the exemption of persecution from Rome like the Jews did. That the Roman Empire sees the Christians as separate from the Jews. So they're no longer considered just another Jewish sect. And so now they're getting full-blown persecution to the point that the vast majority of witnesses for Christ are being killed for their faith. And it's about this time that the word witness is going to turn and evolve into meaning someone who dies for their faith, someone who dies witnessing. And that's where we get the English word martyr. Martyr doesn't actually mean dying for your faith. Martyr means I'm a witness for Christ. But so many people during this time period were dying for being a witness that it became known as you're dying as a witness. And that's why we have the English word martyr. But the word martyr actually is a Greek word that just means witness. But what you need to understand here is, is at this point that a lot of translations then start translating the word witness as an actual dying for your faith martyr in the book of Revelation. It doesn't appear in any other book in the First Testament. But at this point in Revelation, you're going to start seeing the word martyr not being translated witness in a lot of your translations, but be translated martyr. And that's probably not the best translation. I do not think that you should go that route. Because there's going to be places in the Bible where God is going to say, and the martyrs were in heaven before God. And it's going to be very clear that he actually doesn't mean that. He means anyone who has faith in God was in heaven. And, and I, I would strongly recommend that every time you read, and this is how I'm going to read it, that when you read martyr in Revelation, which is the only place it appears, that you should still read witness, 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 witness. When Jesus says to them in Acts 1a, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, 
into the first, he's using that word, Greek word martyr. He doesn't mean you're going to die for the faith. He's saying you're going to be my witness. He's talking about power and influence, not defeat. The reason I'm going to argue that this should not be changed, this is an American understanding that has been read back into Revelation to translate that way. This is not how the Greek works. This is how the English works. The Greek works, it's a witness. Why am I arguing that? Because it can be very dangerous that you might fall into this idea that the only people who are going to heaven are those who die for their faith. Because if you really begin to read the context of many passages throughout Revelation, it talks about the martyrs before the throne of God, the martyrs there and the martyrs there, it really begins to sound like, well, where are all the other believers who didn't die for their faith? Like all those Christians and all those other people, even during the time of Jesus, not all of them died for the faith. If you keep the Greek word witness, it includes all Christians, whether you died or not for the faith. If you translate it martyr, it only refers to the people who died for the faith. So witness includes everything. Martyr is an English word, not a Greek word. There's no Greek that ever translates as witness. Only modern day English translations. And only in the book of Revelation. It does not get translated as martyr any other book of the Bible. And so I don't think God is making the argument that those who died for the faith are in heaven. Those who died in the faith are in heaven. heaven, heaven. I think he's making the fact that all believers are in heaven. And some of them died for the faith and some didn't. And that's the point. Because it becomes very dangerous to say, well, where did all the other believers go? Because if you guys don't die for the faith, then Revelation kind of unintentionally communicates you're not going to heaven. Now, we know that's not true, but remember, this is a letter that's encouraging you that this is the ultimate final salvation. This is, this is every, everything in the Bible is leading to this. And if you're leading to everybody going to heaven and being in eternal life for all of heaven and all eternity, and only the people who died for the faith are there, that kind of is a very vague message. This should still continue to be witnessed all throughout the Bible. He just happened to die for the faith. But he has this against them. They allow false teaching. Why do they allow it? Don't know. Do they not know their Bibles well enough to refute them? Are they too afraid of being judged and condemned? It's one thing to, 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 to hold the faith and not light the incense of the emperor when you're out at work, but when you're in the church and they're your fellow believers and friends and, and you're, you're dependent upon them and you're all suffering together, then it's a lot harder, right? It's a lot easier to stand up to strangers and say, I'm not going to be like you. It's a lot harder when your friend and your fellow Bible study partner is, is um, allowing these false teachers. They're, they're, so Balaam, who's Balaam? It's not literally Balaam. Balaam died thousands of years ago, before them. This comes from Numbers 22 through 24. And Balaam, Balak, was the king of Moab. And Balak realized that he couldn't stop Israel militarily because Israel was kicking everybody's rear end because God was with them. And so he decided that he was going to attack them spiritually. So he hired a magician or a witch or a warlock, whatever you want to call it, and he hired a magician, Balaam. Balaam was the most popular, most respected. He appears outside the Bible. He's well known outside the Bible. Powerful magician. And he was called and hired to curse Israel spiritually so that the demonic world would attack the Jews and make them compromise. But God came to him and literally put the fear of God into him and said, no, 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 no. 
I made promises to Israel, and I'm not a human that changes my mind after I make promises. You cannot curse that which I bless. You can only bless them. And Balaam tried to resist it a little bit, and then God like took his donkey and made him like run into the wall and that kind of stuff, and he realized, okay, I'll do what you, you want to do. So he blessed them. But Balak was ticked. I hired you. I gave you lots of money to curse them. And now the point that the story is making is that you can't attack Israel physically in the material realm and you can't attack them spiritually, demonically because God is sovereign. So Balaam says, I want my money. But I'm too afraid of God to curse them. So he told Balak, this is what you do. You take your temple prostitutes, because the way you worship the pagan gods is through sex. You have these giant orgies in your temples with the priests, and the hope is the gods are watching, you'll turn them on, and they'll want to bless you. That's how they did worship back then. And so you take these temple prostitutes, the holy temple prostitutes. In the ancient world, they thought it was good. They didn't think it was immoral, but we liked doing it. They were like, this is righteousness. You take them, and you send them naked into the camp of Israel, And I guarantee you, people will get distracted and tempted and they'll begin to worship Baal and then God will destroy them out of judgment for their sin. Because God will protect them militarily. God will protect them spiritually. But God doesn't protect them from their own choices. He always gives you free choice. Tempt them and they'll fall and then God will judge them. And that's what happened. That's what happened. And then Balaam Balaam got his money and then later God said, you're to go into the Moabites and you're to kill them for this and make sure you kill Balaam. And they did. And so whatever the teachings of Balaam here probably has something to do with this sexual perversion and greed of financially speaking and idolatry. Just another form of false teaching that basically ultimately leads to follow your heart, just do it, have it your way. And then and that's what he's saying. And he's saying you're allowing these teachings you may not be burning the incense to the emperor and following, but you're allowing false thinking. You're allowing false practices. You're allowing immorality to come in. This is the complete opposite of the Ephesus in a way. These are the people who are passionate for God, but they don't know what it truly means to worship Him. They think that they can just, oh, what's a little sexual worship? What's a little bit of false teachings? Like, They've watered down who God is. They're, 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 they're not, they don't know the word of God very well. They, they, they're not committed to truth and dogmatic teaching. They don't test people to see if they match up with the word of God. This would be the modern day of idea like, I don't think homosexuality is wrong in the Bible. Now, where, where, wait a minute. Where does it say in the Bible you can't have sex before marriage? Oh, the Bible doesn't say anything about maybe doing a little marijuana, Right? Like, we, we can marry politics and the church together. Why, where does the Bible say that? That's wrong. They're, they're, they're on fire for God. They love Jesus. They're, they're committed in a sense, but they don't know the truth, and they're not committed to the truth. And if this is you, and this is what you're struggling with, you're really passionate, you're on fire, but you realize that maybe you're following a little bit more of the teachings of the media than you are of the Bible. Or you know that there's people in the church that say, yes, this is what the Bible says, but it's far more attractive to listen to what the media says. And you're tempted to go this route. Yeah, but it's so much more 
comfortable. And it, it makes God sound like he's more loving and accepting because, right, I love God and I'm on fire for him and I'm passionate about him. And, and this idea that there's nothing wrong with sexual morality and homosexuality and, and doing a little marijuana and, and politics and this and that and that and that. And, and maybe Jesus can, maybe there is another, maybe the Muslims will come to the faith too in some kind of way because, right, they're just really good people and they love God, Right. That, that, sound, that makes God sound more loving. He's more accepting that way. And isn't that what God is? God is love. If that's what you tend to lean towards more and fall into more, then God's, God's saying, no, 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 no. Ephesus was wrong for their lack of passion and being on fire and intimately connected to God. But you're just as wrong for not knowing the truth of who I am. I'm not Bob who likes to go shopping with you. I am Yahweh who is the God of the universe. You cannot make me whatever you want me to be. If, if I start talking about you in an incorrect way and start saying, you like this and you do this, and you're like, that's not me. But hey, we like each other and we have lots of fun. That's all that matters, right? And you're like, no. You knowing who I am is important. You knowing the truth. It's not just enough for you to be in love with me and be passionate about me and want to hang out with me and have fun. But I need to know that you actually know my name. And you, you know my passions. You know the things that I am good at and not good at, what, what I'm committed to, right? And that's what he's saying to them. You need to know the truth of who God is just as much as you need to be passionate. This is the warning for you. For those of you who tend to lean more in that way, this is your prayer. Help me get into the Word of God and actually know what it says. Help me understand that God is not whatever I can make Him be, no more than I can make my friend into whatever I want them to be. That just as it would be insulting to my friend to call them whatever name I wanted and to say that people they don't like are really their friends and did not know their passions and their interests and buy them presents that they told me very clearly that they hate, that that would be insulting. To do the same thing with God would be insulting to him. And the way that I know who God is is this Bible, this truth. And knowing and studying it, and knowing that there might be multiple ways of thinking, but there's only one interpretation, is an important thing to strive for. And just like the person in Ephesus needs to find somebody in Pergama, somebody in Pergama needs to find somebody in Ephesus. And that's your prayer. Your prayer is to help me appreciate the detailed truth of the Word of God. Help me understand that there, God is one thing. And he's not all these other things in addition. I cannot make him in my own image. Help me appreciate how loving that is to know God and not make him what I want to. Help me understand that God knows himself better than the media knows him. That if I want to know God, if I want to know you, I don't go to all your friends and get to know you through them. I come to you and I get to know you. And that this is the only place that God's revealed himself. He didn't reveal himself through Lady Gaga and the music and, and, and Robert De Niro in movies, and, or more accurately, Martin Scorsese, right? He's always got another version of God. He didn't reveal himself through them. He revealed himself through this word. And this is your prayer. When you go home in the next week or so, pray that you would appreciate the uniqueness of the word of God that there is a correct interpretation, that truth of who God is is important, just like truth of your friend is important. 
truth of your spouse is important. Try to make your spouse whatever you want them to be. See how well that goes in your marriage. That's your prayer. And your prayer is to find things like that. And for you, there are books. There's other books on my list because I tend to sway more towards the intellectual thing. Pretty much every other book on my list is like that. Go read Total Truth. Go read Mere Christianity. Go read Christian Manifesto by Francis Schaeffer. Okay, they're, they're Tozer. There's a lot of books on my website that will help gear you that way. And that will help you start honing who God is and how you can know him. Not just be in love with him, but know him. Know him. And that's your prayer. If that tends to be your weakness and your struggle, that's your prayer. Help and pray that God would expose the lies of the media. And most importantly, pray that he would help expose the contradictions of the things that you've begun to believe. It doesn't take much to see the contradictions, but sometimes emotions keep you from seeing contradictions. Like that boyfriend, right? All your friends are like, he's a scumbag. There's so many contradictions and inconsistencies. And you're like, but you don't know him like I do. Pray that God will allow you to see those contradictions. They eat food sacrificed to idols. They commit sexual morality. Behavior is important. Behavior is important. Behavior is not the end goal. Behavior is not the focus. But those who love God and those who know God will behave in a way that He is approving to. Like I said, I'm not saying that behavior is not important. Behavior is really important. But if all be, all it is is behaviorism and that's it, no relationship with God, Ephesus, then you're missing. You, you, you're, just, you're just another good person. But if you really truly know the truth of who this God is and that he's not whatever you want him to be and you fall in love with this God, then correct behavior will naturally begin to follow. But the reason that they're behaving incorrectly is because they don't know who God is. They're passionate for God, but they don't really know who God is and what he loves and what he doesn't love. And so they're not trying to know him and please him. Therefore, they are worshiping their version of God. In the same way, there are also some among you who follow the teaching of the Nicolaitans we already talked about. Therefore repent. If not, I will come against you quickly and make war against those people with the sword of my mouth. You're already divided, but there will be even more division. There will be more conflict. When people have no truth, they turn on each other really quickly. You can see this with the wokeism. The wokeism, you have to check everything, right? You have to believe this, you have to believe this, you have to believe this. You have to be pro this and pro this and pro this. They have this huge list. You have to check them all off. And they all check them off together and they're like, hey, look at us. And then you don't check off things and they devour you and they cancel you and cancel culture, right? But then pay attention to some of those people in the woke media now and watch them talk. Then they get all the way down to the bottom of the list at like 1,225 and there's one thing that they can't check off and the entire community turns on them too just for that one thing like a bunch of piranhas eating their own and I've seen so many interviews with people who are extremely woke and they're like wait a minute they weren't supposed to turn on me and hate me we all turned on all those people I'm so much like them I agree with all their things I just said this one thing and then they get devoured because when you don't really know what truth is and you're not unified on truth, then truth becomes whatever you want, and then you just start going at each other. And this is what God says. I'm going to come, and I'm going to turn you against each other. I'm going to, there's, going to make, there's going to be war and destruction. And we're seeing this. Our political parties are collapsing right in front of us. I mean, they can't even agree with each other within their own political party. The media can't even agree. They're all canceling each other left and right. 
And so this is what's going to happen, God says. The one who has ears, let him hear the Spirit, says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give them some of the hidden manna, and I will give them white stone, and with a written on their name. Now the manna is that bread that God provided in the wilderness during the time of Moses. And they would take a part of it, and they would put it in the Ark of the Covenant. But only the high priests could go to the Ark of the Covenant one time a year. And so probably what he means by hidden manna is not this like hidden teaching or understanding about things that are, because that that's like that woke kind of idea. What he means by the hidden manna is that if you follow me and you come back to truth and you reject false teachings, then like the other churches will have intimacy with God by eating from the tree of life. Okay, Smyrna was going to die, but they will have eternal life intimacy with God. What he's now saying is, I will invite you into the inner sanctum of who I am, and you can have intimacy by eating the bread that I provide. So for Smyrna, he uses the tree of life because that represents the life that they can have despite their persecution and death for holding to the faith. But for them, he's talking about the manna that is in the Ark of the Covenant, which was to be done a certain way and communicated truth and the Mosaic Covenant, which was morality and the Ten Commandments and all that kind of stuff. And the idea is if you come back to truth, the Ten Commandments, which is also in the Ark, you come back to truth, which is the way the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be done, and it had to look a certain way because I'm a certain God and I'm not to look like all those other gods, then I will give you the bread of life, the bread of life that is hidden away in an intimate relationship with me. That's how you have intimacy with me. If Ephesus knew the truth but didn't have the intimacy of relationship, they have the passion in the relationship, but they don't know what God they should go to. It's God in name, but not a God in a definition, a character description, so to speak. He's offering them that. I will give them the white stone. Now, this stone could be lots of multiple things. Their stones were used for casting votes. Stones were used for privileges or voting, all kinds of stuff. But most likely what this white stone might be is admittance. And some religions and some political things they would get, pass out these white, like a business card, and they would pass out these white stones and something would be written on it, and you weren't allowed to be admitted into something, the inner sanctum, unless you had the, the white stone with the right thing on it. And what God is saying is, um, I will give you the white stone. Not because you are an elite, not because you're well-connected, not because you're wealthy, but because knowing me is important to you. The word of God and knowing truth is important to you. And I will give you the white stone and you'll be admitted into heaven. You'll be admitted into heaven. The The name that is written on it means probably just an intimate name. A lot of times if you came into a, a new religion or you took the throne, you might be given a, a new name that represents a new life that you have. And the idea that nobody knows it doesn't probably mean that it's a mystery, but rather that it'll just be an intimate name that means something. This is your prayer. That this is what you struggle with. This is your prayer. And if you know people who struggle with this, condemnation is not the answer. Helping them understand the truth of who God is is the answer. 